Good morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 831. So that's Matthew 25, 31 to 46, on page 831 in the Pew Bible. Uh, please stand with me for the reading of the word. It's beginning in verse 31 of chapter 25 of Matthew's gospel. This is the word of God to us this morning. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a, sep- as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thanks. You may have a seat. Good morning. So our passage for this morning is Isaiah 58, and the passage that Tyler read is a really helpful, important parallel complement to our passage. You'll see even how Jesus was picking up on some of the language in Isaiah 58 when he says what he says there in Matthew 25. Okay, so Isaiah 58, it's on page 617 if you're using the uh, Pew Bible. Before we read it, though, I want want you to think about something here. Um, So there was a British textile designer named Simon Pears and an American entrepreneur named Nicholas Godley, who, starting in around 2004, started experimenting. They, They wanted to make something with spider silk. Okay, so this took a lot of work, and you'll hear about that in a second here, but they, they ended up weaving two extraordinary pieces of clothing with spider silk. And so they were inspired by witnessing the flawless nets, webs, that the golden orb weaver spider of Madagascar could produce. So... Spider silk is this, you know, probably the finest type of silk, much better than the silkworms, you know, that are used um, and can be mass-produced. And yet very few people have actually been able to pull this off because it's so hard to actually extract the silk and then weave it into something. And it's been tried a few times, successfully, unsuccessfully, but this was the most significant project. So just to give you an idea of how big of a deal this is, 70 people spent four years collecting Golden orb spiders daily from telephone poles in Madagascar. What, these are big. They're like this big, um, and they bite. <laughs> um, while another dozen workers carefully extracted about 80 feet of silk filament from each of the arachnids, okay, and then they released them into the wild. So they milked them, and then they released them back into the wild. It takes about 20 minutes to milk each one. Um, you have to pull the spider spinnerets by hand, takes 24 filaments to make a thread. So it's this fiddly, labor-intensive process. And it has taken 
more than two million of these spiders to produce the garments that were displayed. I don't know if they're still displayed there, but at this museum in London. So amazing stuff. You can read about its mechanical properties. You know, it's stronger than steel by weight. No, it's not bulletproof, but like if steel... Okay, whatever. Talk to the engineers. Um, it's also beautiful because it actually comes out this saffron, like gold color. So it's this golden thread, naturally. It takes 23,000 spiders on average to produce one ounce of silk, this kind of silk. So this is like liquid gold, right? Um, these textiles, it was a cape, like a dress sort of thing, and then like a big, huge, long scarf sort of thing um, that they made. And it took years to make them. It was an 11 foot by 4 foot um, cloth thing, and then that dress. Uh, when it was on display in the American Museum of Natural History in New York in 2009, it surpassed all records for visitors of a single exhibit. So there you go. And you can look up pictures of these items on the internet if you want to afterwards. They're beautiful. Now imagine those, I mean, they're one of a kind, There's nothing else like it on the earth. Imagine the curator or somebody that has access to these things, taking these fabrics, sticking them out in the backyard, and letting their 12-year-old use them for target practice with his BB gun. Like, <gasps> imagine, you know, somebody taking spray paint to this beautiful saffron color and writing obscenities on it or taking a knife and just hacking this textile, this rare, precious textile to shreds. Well, guess what? That is just a little tiny picture of what our selfishness does to the fabric of life here on earth that God wove in the beginning. So Cornelius Plantiga wrote a, a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's a book about sin. It's a really great book, really thought-provoking. And he says in one of the chapters that sin is like the vandalism of shalom, the vandalism of peace. And we'll come back to that a little bit later, but let's now read Isaiah 58. And if you wouldn't mind, would you stand in honor of God's word? <clears throat> this is a really powerful passage, and I think God has some important things to say to us this morning. So let's prayerfully approach his word and ask for ears to hear as we read. Isaiah 58, cry aloud, do not hold back. So God speaking to Isaiah to, to preach here to the people. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to me, to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, God answers, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down with his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then 
shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's word. May be seated. Oh God, please would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Please help us by your spirit to behold your glory in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ and to be transformed more and more into his image. Help me, Lord, to make this clear. Guide my mind and tongue and help all of us to humbly listen and to receive the word that you have for us this morning to feed us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us, to challenge us, to inspire us. Please do it, O oh God, for your great name's sake and in, this, in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. All right, so where are we? Isaiah 58. Um, many of you have been with us for a while as we've walked through the book of Isaiah, but just really quickly, chapter 53, it's all about the Messiah, all about Jesus and his suffering in our place, so the ultimate atonement for our sin was provided by the suffering servant, Jesus the Messiah. Then in chapters 54 and 55, there was a call for response to what the Messiah has done, the work of the servant. And the response is, hey, come to the feast. This is for everyone. Hey, over here, <laughs> why do you spend your money on that which doesn't satisfy? Come and eat what's good. Come to Jesus. And then in chapters 56 and 57, a second call for response to do justice and keep righteousness as you enjoy the Sabbath rest that comes only through Jesus and live humbly in the in-between time. Remember, between the cross and the promise when one day God will make all things new. And then now in chapter 58, there's this call for repentance. Repentance from hypocrisy. And it's a call into a life of true worship, true religion that flows from the work of the servant, true religion that shows itself in true righteousness. So we're going to look at it in four points. You'll see there's an outline in your bulletin, or you can follow along with the slides on the screen. Um, let's look first at the first three verses here. <clears throat> I'll read them again. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And then here's the people saying, why, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So, brothers and sisters, friends, this is a sobering passage right here. 
These are not rank hypocrites. They're not like the Sunday-only Christians who smile, you know, the plastic smile on, on Sunday, and then they go out and they're just like cutthroat the rest of the week. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They delight to draw near to God. They even fast. I mean, how many of you guys fast? They like more spiritual than us. Man, these are really spiritual people. They're sincere in their seeking of God. It's daily. It's, you know, sacrificial. But they're sincerely wrong. So their view of their religious observance is that it's a means to an end. They're trying to use their fasting to get what they want. They thought they knew the formula. So if you plug in the right amount of sacrifice, you should be able to expect a certain amount of divine response, right? Return on your investment. So they thought they could buy shares of control with their religion. Give sacrificial observance to the Lord. Okay. You ever fall into that pattern? Anybody know that? You don't have to raise your hand. I think it's pretty common. So listen to uh, Ray Ortland here. He's got a great comment. He says, God knows we can't compensate for neglect in one area of life by observance in another, especially when fasting is less demanding than labor-intensive involvement with needy people. Did you catch that? God knows we can't compensate for neglect in one area of life by observance in another, especially when fasting is less demanding than labor-intensive involvement with needy people. Neither does God want us to prove our devotion to him by making ourselves hungry and miserable while disregarding our obligation to make others full and happy. Do you know how easy this is to do, how natural this is for us to do? To choose sacrifice over obedience. You know, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's repeated multiple times in the Bible. So we choose sacrifice over obedience, and then we register a complaint out of this shocked or hurt sense of entitlement when God doesn't come through for us. Like, how about this? Have you ever been on a plane and Holy Spirit kind of tugs on your heart to talk to the person next to you about the gospel and you read your Bible instead, hoping that that'll kind of pacify God and leave you alone? Because it's too. There were a few giggles. I think a few of us know what that's like. Or how about you walk past somebody who's hungry and maybe they're genuinely in need, but you just put your headphones in and turn on a sermon. Shut the stupid sermon off and go love the person. We can do sacrifice because it can be easier than obedience. Or like passing up a person broken down on the side of the road because you've got to get to church. That's like the Good Samaritan story all over again. Okay, so these are sincere hypocrites. It's completely possible to become profoundly inauthentic and not see it. We need to see that, that that's possible for all of us, for me. For you. Like, it can happen. So these are people who need a prophet to raise his voice like a trumpet and call them out. They need a wake-up call to reality, their reality. They're oblivious to their true state. So this needs to be a reality check moment for, for us this morning. Okay, we need to be sure to be honest with ourselves and with God this morning. We've got to let the Word show us who we really are. And we can't think we already know the answer. Well, we're not being honest with ourselves, right? So these people didn't know. And we, you and I, can most certainly be blind to our true condition. So we need the mirror of the word. Remember what James says in chapter 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, and then he goes and forgets what he looks like. Okay, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, not being a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, who responds to what he sees, he will be blessed in his doing. And then it's funny, the very next verse is, if anyone thinks 
he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue. He deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. So intentionally, James was putting the mirror of the word up so that we can see whether our religion is real. And that's exactly what's going on in Isaiah 58. In other words, we need tests for true faith, true Christianity. Otherwise, we could easily be sincere, sincerely wrong, comfortable in our hypocrisy. Um, That passage that Tyler read is so sobering, isn't it? You don't want to be surprised at the end, do you? Like the people that say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this great stuff for you in your name? Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you. And then the sheep and the goats. Wait, wait, when, when was this? So I don't want any of you to be surprised. I don't want to be surprised. Let's be honest. Let's listen. Let's hear and heed what God has to say to us this morning. Don't tune it out. Don't hold it at arm's length. And, and by permission, Alice and I ran into each other um, earlier this weekend, Alice Ho, and she said, oh, you're preaching on Isaiah 58. This has been really important in our lives. Just so that you know, you know the hoes. They're like the real deal, right? Real faith. And this passage really did some business in Alice's life back when Wayne was on death's door. Okay? So just so you know, like, we need to hear this. Not just, you know, really obvious kind of um, caricature hypocrites. Okay? All of us. So I'm just going to read a bit from her testimony that she sent via email here. So the Lord brought this passage to me on the second day of Wayne's hospital ICU admission um, they were medevaced out of Shanghai. They were in Hong Kong. Wayne's condition was critical. Um, the situation was tenuous. We were waiting family to fly in from the U.S. to prepare for his last moments. Um, if you don't know the story, you should grab them afterwards and ask them to tell it. It's a beautiful testimony of God's grace in their lives. Um, so she, Alice went to a room and cried and asked the Lord to show her and to make some meaning out of this, and he gave her Isaiah 58. They had moved to China She says, we'd moved to China, given up our well-anticipated life, career trajectory, trajectory to be a part of the church in China. Wasn't that good? Wasn't that sacrificial? What he showed me is that he was fully aware of the outer appearance of good. Community pediatrician, ladies' Bible study leader, a child who could recite verses like a champ, but increasingly my heart was hardened and no longer soft toward him and the people around us. I was increasingly self-consumed and discontented. So this passage humbled me deeply to see that this fast, that kind of selfish sacrifice, is despised. And she had big drops of repentant tears, and the Lord really reassured her as he convicted her because there's so many sweet promises in this passage. (laughs) And so the Lord also brought the sweet promises to her as well. The Lord shall guide me continually, satisfy your desire in scorched places, make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden. And so um, Wayne was miraculously healed, but the Lord also did a miracle in Alice's heart too and set her free from some things in a wonderful way. So let's all hear the promise of Isaiah 58. Let's all listen humbly like a little bit later in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Let's not hold this at arm's length. Let's not dismiss this. This could be us. Let's tremble at his word and humbly receive it. So these people look really spiritual, but there was something wrong. Point number two, there was selfishness underneath their self-denial. Look at verses 3 to 5. So they sincerely are surprised, right, with these questions. Why have we fasted and you haven't seen it? God answers, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. So you can picture it here, can't you? So imagine an owner of a company or a manager who takes the day off for religious reasons while he drives the workers like a taskmaster. Which, if you know the Old Testament, flies right in the face of the Sabbath's call for rest for all workers, no matter how low and menial. Exodus 23, 12 says, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your, even your ox and your donkey need to rest. God even cares for the animals with the Sabbath. And the son of your servant woman and the alien, stranger, foreigner, may be refreshed. This rest is for everyone. So don't you rest and then drive those that work for you. 
So here, the religious haves are resting while the have-nots, the workers, are working. That's not just. It's not righteous. It's not right, right? It's worse than that. Look at verse 4. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Might sound a little strange, but if you've ever fasted, you might know what's going on here. <laughs> I mean, imagine a not-so-spiritual family fasting and spending the day together. <laughs> fasting tends to kick up a lot of irritability, doesn't it? We get cranky. So you can imagine even fights break out. James says it really clearly. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, desire and do not have, so you murder? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Selfishness is underneath this quarreling. So the problem, again, is selfishness. And selfishness, even when it's whitewashed with religiosity, is still selfishness. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Verse 4. Verse 5. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed, like, you know, a reed in the wind, you know? It just kind of, the wind goes. It's just unthinking. Is that what I'm talking about? Just this rote thing? To spread sackcloth and ashes under him? It's like a performance, you know? That wasn't required, but in the law, sackcloth and ashes. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? So it's not this automatically meritorious act. You know, if all you're doing is not eating, it just means you're not eating and you're just getting hungry. That's about what it is, what it amounts to. So it's easy for religious observance to, to really be selfish at the core. In fact, think about your prayer life. How much of your prayer life is selfish? Do you do your religious duty because you want God to bless your life plans? We can all fall into that. How much of your prayer life focuses on prayers for safety, health, and success in this or that personal venture? There's nothing wrong with praying for those things, but when it's the lion's share of your prayers, maybe there's some sympathetic vibration with what's going on here, right? Jonathan Edwards wrote this. He said, Christian love disposes a person to be public-spirited. A man of a right spirit, righteousness talked about in Isaiah 58, is not a man of narrow and private views, but is greatly concerned for the good of the community to which he belongs, and particularly of the city where he resides. So living selfishly stagnates our souls. We weren't made to live like reservoirs, like you know, just pools with no outlet. We are made to be like conduits of living water coming from God and then out to others, not stagnant pools. The pool, without any movement, just gets unhealthy and nasty. Riv like a flowing river of living water is full of life and health. So God helps us see what this righteous life looks like as we go on. Point number three, self-denial and righteousness. Look at verses 6 and 7. Here's the fast that God chooses. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? So yes, it's still called a fast, right? Is this not the fast that I choose? It is self-denial, but a different sort from the fasting in those previous verses. This is denying yourself things like comfort, safety, rights over your time and schedule in order to work righteousness and justice for the sake of other people. So setting people free from wicked, unjust bonds and enslaving straps, freeing the oppressed, and, and not just freeing them, do you note this? Not just freeing individuals, but also doing work at a structural level, like a systemic institutional level, so that unjust yokes are broken. Because if you just take it off, 
I set that person free, but then it's on somebody else. What if you break that yoke so that it can't continue to enslave more and more people? So it also has this open heart. Do you see it? Open heart, open home to meet the needs of the needy. Sharing your bread with the hungry is literally, it's, it's not just writing a check, but it's serving your bread to the hungry. It's more involved than just writing a check. And this phrase, the homeless poor, refers not simply to homeless people. It also refers to foreigners. You, you could actually put refugees in there, and it would be a really good translation. So people that lack ad- adequate clothing, you should clothe them. Don't cover yourself and hide from need. Isn't that our impulse so often? But instead, cover others and meet their needs, just like Matthew 25. This is true religion. And then make sure you don't miss that last line. Do not hide yourself from your own flesh. That's a pretty shocking statement. You see what's being said here? It's saying that the refugee, the homeless person, the foreigner, that person is in a very real sense your own flesh. They're family. When it comes to loving our neighbor, sharing blood in Adam is more decisive than racial, national, or what we call family blood. That's pretty sobering. We love to hold people outside our immediate circle at arm's length. No, these are your family. There's one family, in a sense, because there's one father. I mean, isn't that the point of Luke 10 and the parable of the Good Samaritan? Everyone God puts in your path is your neighbor. Love whatever neighbor God puts in your path. So just to make this really practical and and concrete, what Lori and others are doing to care for Nada and her family, this refugee family that the Lord has intersected our path with, that's just what this text is talking about. A Muslim refugee from the Middle East. She's family. She's our own flesh and blood. Do you see refugees that way? Like enough with xenophobia in the church. Of course we need policies and, you know, vetting and all this in our country. But like when they're here, that's our flesh and blood. We love our neighbors, even our enemies. That's to follow Jesus. So nada is family. That is true religion. And on an encouraging note, I just, I didn't ask you, Lori, if I could share this, but I'm going to. Sorry, I know you would be okay with this. Um, Lori recently took some help to her from our church family. Nada broke down and cried when Lori told her that Isa's, that's Jesus' people, want her to know his love and care. And she said, Lori, I do know this is true. Your people have shown this to me again and again. I don't deserve it. Yes. And then she asked how she might say thank you and has asked when our next church celebration or holiday is coming up because she came to the tea. She's probably thinking something like that, right? Um, since it's not really until Christmas, I told her we were having a special conference in September, the missions conference, that focuses on telling others about Jesus' love, and many would be there, and that we would be having an international dinner. Her eyes lit up with excitement, and she said, I will prepare some food for this. I'm also talking to her about being on a panel in one of the workshops aimed at bring, bridging cultural divides, and maybe she'll come. I'm going to pray that she'll come so that she can get around some of us and we can show her the love of Jesus while we keep telling her about the love of Jesus. So the fast that God chooses is to work for justice and freedom where there is oppression and slavery. It's to work at the individual level as well as the structural and systemic level. This is overwhelming, I know, okay? But at least we know what we're after. So if you have one without the other, if you work at the individual level only and never at the structural systemic level, You're not going to make lasting progress. So, for example, um, 
You can rescue a girl from sex trafficking in Thailand or Philly or Wilmington or Amsterdam. But there's going to be the need to provide education and job training and a new community. And what is going to be done on the level of demand? There's a huge demand for prostitutes. That's part of the problem. So how do you take aim at that? It has to do with porn and objectification of women and a whole host of other societal ills and patterns. It's all woven together. So we can't just talk here in the institutional structural level and never actually care for individual people. We have to care for individual people who are enslaved. We've got to break that yoke. But also, if we just only do the individuals and never address the societal, structural, institutional stuff, then we're never striking at the roots. Think William Wilberforce and the end of the slave trade. So, it's all woven together. Speaking of weaving, God created the world to be like a fabric. What makes a fabric a fabric is when every single thread is interwoven under, around, through the others. You know, warp and woof, I don't have any idea really what that means. I just said it. Um, make it sound like I do. You can talk to somebody else about that. But when it's woven well, the fabric is strong and it's beautiful. So, I heard a message by Tim Keller about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, something like that. And I've never forgotten it. I've shared bits and pieces from what he shared there. And I'm going to repeat some of it here again and extend it a little bit. Okay? So this passage here in Isaiah 58 is all about doing justice and righteousness. In our day and culture, justice is usually focused on the freedoms and rights of the individual. Isn't it? So often? In the world, the Bible is the exact opposite. You couldn't conceive of happiness apart from community, familial happiness, clans, nations. So justice only came about when individuals realized that their stuff, their things, their resources were not their things. The focus was on the good of the community. So what you're working for when you're working righteousness and justice is communal shalom, communal peace and wholeness and flourishing the good of society. What is shalom? This is some of the stuff I've shared before, but great summary by a guy named Cornelius Plantiga. He used to be the president of Calvin College in Michigan. Um, he writes this, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. In some, shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. Sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities and therefore an affront to their architect and builder. Okay, I've done this before, but just teasing this out. Okay, what does that look like? Well, physical, psychological, social, just really quickly. Physical shalom. When all the parts of your body are working well, working together, you have physical shalom. But what if you get cancer? Your body is working against itself. It's destroying itself. It's the unraveling of shalom. Psychological shalom, spiritual, heart level. When you know who you are, when you're at peace with God, you're honest with yourself, you experience conscience, psychological, heart level shalom. There's nothing to hide, there's nothing to fear. Your conscience actually strives for this, but what happens when your desires want something that your conscience says is wrong? There's a war. And then what happens when you actually do that something that you know is wrong? Shalom is un upset. It's the unraveling of that peace and wholeness and flourishing. And then at the societal, social level, when the haves share with the have-nots, when people push their resources into the whole human community, and therefore there's good, you know, you can 
list a bunch of things, schools and libraries and parks and whatever. But when there's selfishness and corruption and the haves ignore the have-nots, you have the unraveling of peace and shalom. So Keller gives the illustration of It's a Wonderful Life. How many people have seen that movie? Come on, every Christmas, you know, Jimmy Stewart. So he plays the guy who had actually pressed tons of his family resources into the community of Bedford Falls, right? But after some hard circumstances, he's about to jump off a bridge and kill himself, and a guardian angel rescues him by jumping in first, and then he has to rescue the angel and whatever. The angel, he tells the angel that he wishes that he had never been born. So the angel, kind of like in uh, uh, Night Before Christmas sort of way, you know, shows him a picture of Pottersville. What if you had never been born and never plowed your resources into this community it would be this dark and nasty, you know, violent place called Potterville because, you know, Jimmy Stewart guy had kind of stood against the... Anyway, you guys tracking with me? You know what I'm saying? Okay. So it was a look at the unraveling of shalom where selfishness ruled. Injustice, unrighteousness abounded. Well, okay, why do I share all that? Here's the point. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created everything good, good, very good. Shalom, shalom, all across the earth. Universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, like a beautiful, strong fabric of relationships it was supposed to be that supports everyone and everything in harmony and peace and joy. And then sin came in with a knife and just tore the fabric. That's what happened in the garden. That's what happened. The serpent came in exactly to plunge the knife into God's perfect fabric. And there was physical consequences. In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. That's not the way it's supposed to be. There were psychological consequences. They were afraid when God showed up in the garden. They had to run and hide because they were ashamed. They were guilty. And then there were relational conflicts. So Adam is going to puff up his chest, throw his weight around. Eve is going to want to try to control her husband. Cain and Abel, and just magnify it throughout the whole earth. The opposite of shalom. It was vandalized. So the righteous person in Isaiah 58 is the person who takes his resources, money, talent, time, and plows it back in to others for the good of the whole. He impoverishes himself in order to enrich others. And just for what this is worth, for any of you that might be a little nervous, this is not some social justice, social gospel thing divorced from the gospel of Jesus. Christians ought to care about and seek to do something about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. John Piper said it, summarized it, something like that. So justice and righteousness, therefore, is finding places in the fabric, it's not hard to find in our broken world, where people are falling through because the fabric is torn. And you use your resources to reweave the fabric so that the relationships are strong and people are held up and they flourish. And according to this passage, it doesn't matter what race or nation or social class they come from, they're all your own flesh. So if we're Christians, we cannot be indifferent to the vandalism of peace in our world. We've got to reweave the fabric by plunging our lives and resources into these gaping holes. So just so you don't hear this out of context, this does not mean, oh, add feed the poor to your list of sacrifices. That's not, that would miss it. Paul says, if I give away all I have and deliver my body up to be burned I have, and I don't have love, I've got nothing. This is not just adding another box to your checklist so that you can get on to what you really want to do. What we need is we need to know the grace of our Lord Jesus. We need to know Isaiah 53 because Isaiah 53 empowers Isaiah 58. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 summarizes so well. For you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, the glory of the Father, the eternal Son of God, that though he was rich, yet, rich, yet for our sake, 
he became poor. He willingly impoverished himself, took on flesh and blood, lived as a homeless, you know, rejected peasant so that we by his poverty might become rich, enriched with the mercy of God. So we knifed the fabric at the fall. We've been tearing at it ever since, fraying the fabric. There's holes everywhere. And what did Jesus do? And this fabric is infinitely more valuable than a golden orbed spider web cape. (laughs) What did Jesus do? He plunged himself like a needle, carrying golden thread of the gospel, plowing the resources of heaven into our spiritual poverty and brokenness to lift us up and hold us so that we can flourish again. So he bore our sin to carry sin's serrated edge far away from us. He suffered so that he could heal the sufferers. He became poor to enrich us. That is the fast that God chose. He chose it for us. Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, equal with God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be held on to and used to his own advantage. He emptied himself. He chose a fast. He denied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so if you don't know Jesus yet and you are broken and frayed, you can come to him and he can heal you. He can remake your life. That's what he came to do. We are spiritually poor beggars. We've got nothing to bring to the table except our sin. He says, I'll take that and I'll give you grace. That's awesome. He can remake us. But it doesn't just stop there. We deserve justice for our guilty vandalism, yes. We receive grace and mercy through Jesus. When we receive that grace and mercy, it actually produces impulses for righteousness in our lives. We end up following our crucified Savior, denying ourselves willingly, taking up our cross and following him so that we can plow our resources into the needs around us in order to reweave the fabric just like he did. So we willingly impoverish ourselves in order to enrich the lives of others. That's the call of this passage. So the question is, are we listening? Do you see, we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to hear and respond. I don't know what the answer is for some of you. It might be work at the mission. It might be refugee ministry. Does the Lord want to expand things and not as just the, the kind of initial opening of the door? Maybe we need to do some ESL stuff so that we can care for that community in this area. I don't know what it is. But the Christian life is, yes, if anyone, comes, if anyone, anyone desires to come after me, Jesus speaking, he must deny himself, deny your selfishness, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever tries to save his life selfishly will lose it. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. There's so many blessings. If you, if you die to your selfishness, there's actually so many blessings on the far side of self-denial. Selfishness is always going after fool's gold. So we turn from that, and we do deny ourselves comfort, safety. We're going we're gonna to give our resources to bless other people, to enrich others. But God always has better treasure for us following Jesus on that path of self-denial. So whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will find it. Let's look at these last few verses. Oh boy, I just noticed what time it is. Okay, but we're almost done. So look at these promises. This is the find your life blessings of pouring your life out for others because Jesus poured his life out for you. Verse 8, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard to protect you. Like, this is no self-denial, you know, where we just like, oh, I'm suffering so much for Jesus. No, like, you follow Jesus on this road, and it's the happy path. 
There's so many blessings in spending your life on stuff that matters. Then you shall call. See, they wanted the Lord to hear. We fasted. Why don't you answer? Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, this is crazy. Here I am. Where did you hear that before? Isaiah. Here I am. I'm your servant. I'm yours. God is saying to those who trust me, to those who turn from living selfishly and live for me, they call and I say, here I am. I'm at your service. That's amazing. (laughs) That's amazing. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, even this gossipy, critical spirits can tear apart shalom, the speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry, satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually, satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Lose your life and you'll find it. There is satisfaction that's only found in walking forward in obedience, loving your neighbor and spending yourself for the good of others. And your ancient ruin shall be rebuilt, building up the city of God. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repair, the breach, the restore of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, delight yourself in the Lord. And the holy day of the Lord call it honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall delight in the Lord. And he'll make you ride on the heights of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. So Jesus lost his life to give us life. He became poor that we might become rich. That is the fast that God chose for us. And now we must lose our lives to give others life and find ours. We impoverish ourselves that we might enrich others. That is the fast that God chooses for us, for others through us. So what does it mean to do justice, to live a righteous life? Find some places in the fabric around you, our community at large, relationships around you, where the fabric is weak, where people are falling through, and go and use your resources, the grace God's given you, time, talent, treasure, all of that, and use it to reweave the fabric. You and I are like needles, and gospel grace and truth is like golden thread. Let's plunge it in and see what God will do. Let's pray. We're going to sing, take my life and let it be, which is an appropriate response to this passage. And so, Lord, would you do that, would you make our hearts all willing to pray like this? Take our lives and let them be yours for your purposes, however you want to use them, and we pray that you would lead us on the path following Jesus, the one who became poor and gave us his riches so that we might be made new and we might be used by you to bring blessing and grace and mercy to so many others. In Jesus' name, amen.